Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, coming to you today from Studio A here at uh, the VMPR Studios. Just uh, found out at the very last moment I needed to hustle over from uh, Studio B over to Studio A, apparently having some trouble with the camera over there. Um, which is not a big deal for me because I definitely have a face for radio. But for those of you who like to watch uh, us on Rumble, like to look at the uh, the video. Uh, they moved me over here. Uh, so, okay, today's program, it is the season once again. And so I am going to be called upon one more time to debunk some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding the celebration of All Hallows' Eve, Halloween coming up uh, the first next week. Also on a related topic, I'm um, going to do a quick Catholic kryptonite apologetic segment on the uh, common objection of prayer to the saints. All right, very Catholic uh, uh, doctrine. Also mentioned uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about how the U.S. Bishops' Conference, the USCCB, uh, has involved in a three-year campaign to promote to promote a Eucharistic revival in our country. And Father Father Peter Stravinskas posted an article on the Catholic Thing the other day um, called "What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival." He's asked it as a question. So we're going to look at that as well and uh, take a closer look at uh, uh, some other things if we have the time. But uh, to begin, as always, starting with the uh, gospel from this Sunday that began this week, and we're uh, once again turning to the extraordinary form uh, because we actually covered the ordinary form gospel, which was the Pharisee and the publican, kind of recently here on the program. So... uh, doing the Extraordinary Form Gospel for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, taken from John chapter 4, where Jesus heals the official's son. He went again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. At Capernaum, there was a royal official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and pleaded that he come and heal his son, who was near death. Jesus said to him, Unless you witness signs and wonders, you will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, Return home. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him, and he departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him, saying that his child was going to live. He asked them at what time the boy had begun to recover, and they told him, The fever left him yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon. Then the father realized that was the exact hour at which Jesus had assured him, your son will live. And he and his entire household came to believe. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, the royal official in uh, in this gospel was probably an officer of the court of King Herod Antipas who was the ruler of Galilee. So he would have traveled, probably walked, uh, something like 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana to see Jesus. 
And when he got there, you notice he addresses Jesus as Lord. So he's recognizing, acknowledging Jesus as his superior, even though legally speaking, uh, you know, this royal official would have authority over a, a Galilean peasant. Now, God permitted uh, the son of that official to fall sick. And uh, he did this for, for a purpose, so that by going to Christ for help, that this uh, man might obtain faith and salvation. So the first lesson here is that suffering can be good for us, both for the sinner and for the just person, you know, as an opportunity for conversion for the sinner and as a means of greater merit for the just. So God sometimes even sends afflictions on the pious and the innocent or allows them to be uh, frustrated or tormented by wicked men. But he does this only to increase their patience and love for him to help them be detached from the world, uh, to set them on guard against sin, and to give them the opportunity for obtaining greater merits. For as St. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, one of my very favorite verses uh, from the New Testament, he said, We know that God makes all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Such was the plan of God in regard to uh, Job and Tobit in the Old Testament and others. And we know how profitable their trials from God were for them. The question is, how do we compare with these pious souls when we so often fail to turn our trials to our advantage by patience, but, you know, often on the contrary, consider as our enemies those whom God has sent to sanctify us? I just, I was on the uh, uh, Terry and Jesse show filling in for Jesse Romero today, just, you know, minutes ago. And we were talking about forgiveness and how we are called to forgive and to love even our enemies and to realize that sometimes, you know, that they're in our lives for a purpose. Also, uh, this miracle was not just a favor for one individual who asked nicely, all right? It was a sign to all people. Uh, in fact, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's gospel was not written for a, a specific audience, uh, you know, or a spe- you know, in a specific location, but for the whole church, really for everyone everywhere to urge them to faith in Christ. And so here you have this royal official that had um, faith that Jesus could do what he claimed, that he would be able to work this miracle. So rather than believing because of the miracle, like the first miracle that took place in Cana at the wedding when the apostle says, this sign he did at Cana and his apostles believed, this official believed first and only then saw the miraculous sign. And that's a good lesson for us because uh, it teaches us something about the nature of faith. You know, just two verses prior to this episode in John four forty four. Jesus declared to his unbelieving companions that a prophet is not treated with honor even in his own hometown, even by those of his own household, even though they had already seen him at work. You know, to believe in Jesus is to welcome the salvation that comes through him. So this particular miracle, this sign, as John calls it, is first of all a response to faith that Christ did the miracle in response to the man's faith. So John recounts this miracle not only as a demonstration of the official's faith, but as a call for us to believe. 
if we want God to move in our lives. Just as Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Uh, Furthermore, and I think this is also really an important point, is that this official didn't just believe Jesus, but he obeyed Jesus by returning home as he told him to, thus demonstrating his faith. You know, it's not enough for us to say that we have faith in Jesus. It's not enough to say that we believe he can, uh, you know, take care of our trials and tribulations. We need to act as if he can. You know, when we pray about a need or a problem, we should live as though uh, we, you know, really believe that Jesus can do what he says. The way you behave demonstrates what you really believe. And Jesus' miracles, and you can take this from somebody who was a former professional magician, his miracles weren't illusions, and they weren't the product of wishful thinking. And we know, reading the scriptures, that often Jesus healed um, through physical objects, right, through their instrumentality. He, he, he didn't just make the wine appear at Cana like a magic trick. He transformed water into wine. When, when he cured the man who, just, who was born blind, he first combined dust and spittle, and then he took the mud and anointed his eyes with it. You know, he, he, communicating grace through the, the physical sign, a la the Holy Sacraments. It's really a foreshadowing of the Holy Sacraments. But here we, we see, you know, Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, and as such is all-powerful. So although that official son was like 20 miles away, he was healed when Jesus merely spoke the word. Distance wasn't a problem because as God, Christ is master over time and space. You know, you can never put so much space between yourself and Christ that he can't help you. It's like the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 138, 7 through 10, is the Dewey Reams, I think it's 139 in in the modern translations. But he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy face? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I descend into hell, thou art present. If I take my wings early in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there also shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. No matter where you go, God is already there. And notice also uh, how the official's faith grew even in, you know, in this tight little story. Because first, he believes enough to ask Jesus to help his son. And then second, he believes Jesus' assurance that his son would live and acted on it by, by heading home. And faith is a gift that grows as you use it. And, and thirdly, when he got home, his whole household believed in Jesus. Now, just stop for a minute and think about that. This royal official, you know, had hardly, you know, received the faith when his whole household was converted and believed in Jesus. And that shows us that, that parents, fathers, and, and mothers of families, by their good example of faith, by their piety, uh, their zeal in prayer, their fidelity in attending Mass, their worthy reception of communion and their frequent confession— by the three M's, I call it, of meekness, moderation, and modesty. They can do incalculable good for their children, an important reality for parents and grandparents to reflect upon, especially, um, you know, uh, in light of the words of St. Paul, 
If they have no care for their own, and especially those of their own house, they have denied the faith and are worse than the infidel. And that's no nonsense. Halloween and more when we come back on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Well, tis the season. Uh, Halloween is almost upon us, followed by All Saints Day and All Souls Day, kind of the triumvirate of death here in the liturgical year where we, um, you know, prior to the Advent season, start looking at the four last things, right, which is something we should really do all year long. But uh, in the next segment here, I'm going to try and just see how many how questions about Halloween I can answer uh, because, you know, every year at this time I see well-intentioned Christians, well-intentioned Catholics putting up things on Facebook that, you know, say that Halloween is the devil's holiday and so forth. And, uh, and I know that Halloween has been co-opted by the forces of evil as well as the forces of consumerism, but the fact of the matter is Halloween is a Catholic feast. It is the vigil of All Saints Day. All Hallows Eve, or All Hallows Even, in Old English was, you know, Hallow was the Old English word for saint. All Hallows Even, you know, we shortened even to Eve, or evening to Eve. Uh, and what they would do, you know, instead of taking the N off the end, they took the V out of the middle. Right, So in some old books, you will even see Halloween with an apostrophe between the two E's because it's a contraction of All Hallows' Even or All Hallows' Eve, the Vigil of All Saints. So the question is, was Halloween a, a dark pagan festival uh, for conciliating uh, evil powers that the church baptized by you know, converting pagan practices with a thin veneer of Christianity? And the answer to that is no. Uh, Halloween's as Catholic as the rosary. In the early days um, of the church, Christians were accustomed to celebrate the anniversary of the death of local martyrs and, you know, in in their local liturgy. Uh, In the fourth century, uh, after we came up out of the catacombs, uh, the, the neighboring dioceses started to kind of interchange these feasts and devotion to some saints grew um, and so they would be uh, celebrated more universally. But of course, there were far more martyrs than there were days in the year. And so they started to join in a common feast for all the saints on the Friday after Easter. Now, in the year 610, Pope Boniface, that's hard to say, Pope Boniface IV consecrated the Pantheon in Rome to the Blessed Virgin and all the saints, all the martyrs. And so he ordered that anniversary to be celebrated on May 16th. And the feast proved so popular that the day had to be changed uh, because there was simply not enough food available in the springtime to accommodate all of the pilgrims that descended upon Rome to celebrate All Saints Day. So in the 700s, Pope Gregory III consecrated a chapel at the Basilica of St. Peter to all the saints and moved the, the Roman celebration of All Saints Day to the 1st of November, okay, at harvest time, when there'd be, you know, food enough to accommodate everybody. Uh, Gregory IV extended the November 1st celebration to 
the entire church, so not just the Diocese of Rome, but throughout the whole church, it was moved to November the 1st. And naturally, the vigils were celebrated uh, as early as the feasts themselves. So All Saints Day was uh, preceded by All Saints Eve, and, and then an octave was added by Sixtus IV in the 1500s, or 1400s, rather, the 15th century. So there was kind of a miniature Halloween season that used to be called All Hallowtide, all the way up to the 1950s, when Pope Pius XII started instituting these uh, liturgical reforms that would eventually culminate in an entire new order of the Mass after Vatican II, and that's another topic for another time. But um, the question is, what about the paganism upon which Halloween is supposedly based, or Halloween customs? Well, you know, pagan people typically understood life and death as cyclical, And so they celebrated their dead. They remembered their ancestors in the springtime when that life and death cycle is starting over. Hence the original May 16 date for All Saints Day, right? Because the pagan celebrations uh, uh, for the dead had always been held in the spring. And and likewise, uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving is considered kind of the quintessential American Halloween story, right? The Headless Horseman. But actually, if you read it, you will find that it's not set at Halloween, but in the springtime, according to the old customs of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, In Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Transylvanian peasants tell Renfield, don't go to Castle Dracula, because it's Walpurgisnacht. This is the night when when the dead roam the earth, right? But again, Walpurgisnacht is in April. Here in Southern California, we have a a large Hispanic Catholic community that celebrates the uh, La Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead at, um, at uh, you know, around All Saints and All Souls Day. But again, that, that Day of the Dead celebration, those customs go back to pagan times, but they were celebrated in the spring. So the point is that all of these kind of pagan traditions that associ- were associated with honoring the dead have been transferred, uh, you know, those cultural observances have been transferred from when the pagans actually celebrated them to now when the church celebrates the saints and uh, All Souls Day. So Halloween, costu- uh, Halloween customs, trick-or-treat, jack-o'-lanterns, uh, uh, wearing costumes, none of that was ever a part of ancient paganism, okay? For one thing, jack-o'-lanterns are American because there weren't any pumpkins in Europe until uh, the discovery of the New World, uh, wearing costumes uh, at this time of year uh, for All Saints and All Souls Day is actually, um, that dates back to medieval France and the days of the Black Plague, when they would, um, it was manifested culturally um, by something called the Danse Macabre. And the Danse Macabre was a custom, it was a pageantry, right, where someone dressed as the figure of death would lead a parade of, uh, you know, men and women dressed uh, in, in costumes representing the Pope and the clergy, uh, male and female religious, the king and the queen and the other royalty, and nobility, and then followed by the craftsman, you know, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, and, and the fish wife, and so on. And, and then with the common peasantry just joining in the uh, parade, bringing up the rear. <clears throat> and the point behind this, you know, it was a timely reminder that this, this skeletal figure leading a parade of everybody to show that, that death is no respecter of persons, that everyone dies, that death comes for us all, and that we need to be prepared because no one knows the day or the hour. 
And, and that very imagery, uh, the notion of death as the grim reaper who's bringing in a harvest of souls, is entirely biblical. That's, that's imagery based on the words of our Lord Jesus himself. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, uh, you know, which represent the just and the sinners in the church, Jesus says, let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will say to the reapers, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles for burning, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this, likewise, that idea of the day of judgment or doomsday is a Christian belief. You know, Catholics celebrate the, the Holy Mass according to a, a yearly liturgical cycle that corresponds to the seasons of the year. But we do not see life as cyclical, like the pagans of old, but as linear. See, for the Christian, life has meaning and purpose, and each individual soul is on its way to an ultimate, ultimate and eternal destination, either in heaven or in hell. Right? So that, again, that thoroughly Christian. And what about trick-or-treat? Is that an old pagan custom? Again, sometimes people bring up uh, uh, the, the, I don't know, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but uh, they say it was kind of like Christmas caroling, that on um, All Hallows' Eve, people would go, or on All Saints' Day, maybe they would go from house to house and um, and ask for treats, little soul cakes, they called them, uh, so that they would, you know, in return for praying for people's soul. Kind of a... Kind of like, a, you know, a, a Halloween version of Christmas caroling. Now, I have no idea if that's true or not. But even if it is, that's clearly a Christian practice and not a pagan one. Um, trick or treat, well, it is as American as apple pie. When my dad was a boy in the, in the 20s and 30s, um, he told me that Halloween was celebrated as a mischief night. There wasn't any trick or treating, you know. And when they say mischief, that's a nice way of saying uh, low-key vandalism, you know, throwing eggs at, at cars or soaping windows, tipping over the outhouse, that kind of thing. Uh, and so in the, in the 20s and 30s, the Boy Scouts of America started promoting putting an end to the mischief with an appeal for a safe and sane Halloween. Now, if you're my age, you will associate that safe and sane motto with the, uh, the careful use of fireworks on the 4th of July. And once again, it originated with the Boy Scouts of America. So, so for Halloween, as an alternative to the vandalism, the Scouts promoted a kind of benign extortion. You know, it's sort of a racket where the kids would go from house to house and offer trick or treat. With the treat being the price of, you know, leaving their neighbors' outhouses upright and their gates unswitched and their windows unsoaped. Okay, and they did this all in disguise, of course. Now... Trick-or-treat didn't really catch on uh, until after World War II. And uh, this, you know, primarily secular American celebration of Halloween was seen mainly as an entertainment for children. It was only when the baby boomers grew up that Halloween turned into big business for adults. Because, you know, that, that huge demographic, that same huge demographic that the, made the Beatles so famous, you know, all of a sudden they're old enough for pursuits other than, you know, bobbing for apples or trick-or-treating. So today, Halloween has become a multi-billion dollar cottage industry with uh, uh, international companies mass producing costumes and makeup and masks and decorations and so on, just like any major holiday. You know, and, and it's funny, funny, when we come back, we'll talk more about this, how um, fundamentalist Christians 
as well as modern, you know, Wiccans and other occultists, you know, neo-pagans and whatnot, um, describe Halloween activities as being derived from ancient European witchcraft and druidism from the old religion, when in fact there was no tradition of trick-or-treating or jack-o'-lanterns or costume parties in Europe until Halloween arrived as an American import right, in the 20th century. And I should also, I guess before we go on, I should uh, take a minute and mention that I always encourage Catholics to kind of avoid fundamentalist materials when they're researching Halloween, okay? I mean, after all, our, our separated brethren get a lot wrong when it comes to Catholicism, don't they? Uh, you know, they, their ideas about the sacraments or prayer to the saints or the Pope or Mary or purgatory and so on. Um, you know, and information on what the Catholic Church really teaches about those things is readily available. So if they get so much wrong on such basic issues that you know about, why would you trust that they, you know, what, anything that they would have to say about Halloween? You know, I, I think the late Jack Chick must have been the worst offender. He used to print those little uh, sensationalist comic books, uh, uh, you know, extremely anti-Catholic. And he did not scruple to purposely misrepresent facts or, or even mix up, up out a whole cloth, which is to say with no factual or historical basis whatsoever. And he published a lot of uh, tracks about Halloween. And we're going to talk about that and more when we come back with uh, more no-nonsense Catholicism, no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Also going to talk about the Eucharistic revival later on in the program. So stay with us and we'll be right back after these messages. Right. We were talking about Halloween, and I was telling you that uh, uh, as a Catholic, it's probably better to avoid fundamentalist uh, or other Christian uh, materials about Halloween. Um, and I, I pointed out Jack Chick and uh, his Halloween tracks. He published several of them, all of which were just laughable nonsense. But the funny thing is that this is the kind of source where a lot of people get the idea that Halloween was kind of some solemn night for witches and druids. And we've already seen that that's not the case, that this was a, a thoroughly Christian uh, a holiday. Uh, and, and I would hasten to add that the idea that uh, witchcraft was really some, you know, old pre-Christian, you know, goddess nature religion um, uh, is something that actually appeared in the 20th century. And it's ironic that fundamentalist Christians on the one hand and, and you know, witches self-styled or otherwise, on the other, have kind of become strange bedfellows in this. You know, in their common aversion to the Catholic faith, they've kind of created an echo chamber for keeping some of these old anti-Catholic myths alive as if they were true. And, you know, the simple fact of the matter is some rather uncritical modern witches, quote-unquote, have treated this fundamentalist nonsense as if it was actual history and then built their own house of cards on top of that, falsely asserting uh, you know, or making false assertions about ancient religious practices that simply never existed in history. And it doesn't stop there. And, boy, I'll use this as an example. I, I see stuff on Facebook and YouTube, and, and I, I promise you, you know, and it's not only fundamentalist Christians, although it's primarily fundamentalist Christians, but there's even one kind of uber-traditionalist group 
that accuse modern stage magicians of being in league with the devil to do their magic tricks. And they will, you know, they'll post like slow motion videos of oh, David Copperfield or whoever saying, look, there's no way that that's just some trick. That's obviously real. <laughs> and maybe they have the added weight of some supposedly ex-witch or ex-Satanist who has come to Jesus and, you know, claims that, you know, Chris Angel or Penn and Teller or whatever invoked demonic assistance twice a night in Las Vegas. Now, as a former professional magician myself, I can tell you that that's absolute nonsense. And allow me to assure you that any professional magician and most well-posted amateur magicians can tell you precisely how David Blaine or Chris Angel or whoever do their tricks, although they most certainly won't. <laughs> However, in this day and age, it's not all that difficult to find out for yourself if you were really interested. I guess my point is that ignorance and credulity are not Christian virtues. The no-nonsense truth of the matter is that Halloween is not an ancient pagan festival that's been Christianized. On the contrary, it is a Christian holiday, particularly a Catholic one, that's been secularized. And, and I have to admit that it most certainly has been thoroughly and successfully co-opted by secularists and occultists alike, and, and most profitably by the forces of commercialization. Just like St. Patrick's Day and St. Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve and Lord help us, even Christmas. But as with my cultural observation of those religious holidays, I'm not going to forgo my jack-o'-lantern or, uh, uh, you know, I didn't forbid my kids when they were young to go trick-or-treating uh, to our neighbor's house any more than I'm going to, you know, throw out my holly wreath at Christmas or, or stop buying my wife roses on Valentine's Day or wearing green on St. Patrick's. See, in every case... Common sense and the virtue of prudence should be your guide. Because for all that I've said, it is true that Halloween is misrepresented by self-styled witches and their neo-pagan fellow travelers and even Satanists as a way of drawing kids into their influence. And that is dangerous. There's an entire cottage industry of occult materials being marketed directly to teens and children. Llewellyn Publishing, one of the biggest occult publishers uh, you know, in the world, as far as I know, puts out a book called Teen Witch. It was first published in the uh, late 90s, and it's been their number one bestseller now for years, even outselling their uh, a book on astrology that's been in print for almost 100 years. Um, and, and there's a whole cottage industry of uh, occult practice uh, books for children that are uh, you know, uh, associated with Harry Potter. You know, not officially, but, you know, have the, that, that whimsical look and, and, and you know, written by people with uh, colorful sobriquets like, uh, you know, Cornelius Rumstuckle and so forth. Obviously trying to cash in on kids' interest in the occult because of Harry Potter. And this year, I mean, somebody sent a, a link to VMPR the other day for a children's board game called Let's Summon Demons, <laughs> which has an accompanying coloring and activity book of the same name. Now, about two minutes' research revealed that it's meant to be a joke, that it's a satire. But, you know, I come from a long line of cowboys, and my, as my Uncle Harry used to say, some things ain't funny. And that's certain summoning demons is one of them. You know, in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And when he says magician, he's talking about, you know, in the classical sense, like Dr. Faustus or whatever. And, um, you know, I would also point out that something that's every bit as disturbing, or if not more so, about the Halloween industry is the sexualization of a children's holiday. I mean, it's become a night of debauchery for for uh, adult people, you know. But I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, the, the adult women that use Halloween as an excuse to dress like a prostitute or, you know, all the, the, the costumes, the sexy witch and the, you know, uh, sexy little red riding hood and sexy, you know, whatever, Alice in Wonderland. But the, the, but the fact that those things are being marketed, these sexy costumes, quote unquote, are being marketed to adolescent girls. And it is a, a kind of a social grooming, right? For this hypersexuality, what I think is far more worrying than, than you know, cardboard skeletons and jack-o'-lanterns. So my advice, you know, and, I, and again, I come from a background before my conversion where I was involved in, in some occult activities. For Catholics, my advice is use your head and exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit when you're discerning how to celebrate Halloween. Obviously, it's dangerous to dabble with the occult, you know, casting spells and and, uh, playing with Ouija boards and the like. And it certainly isn't healthy for kids or anyone else to obsess over, you know, horror movies and, and so on. But that doesn't make It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown into a gateway to the occult. Okay? The important thing is to remember what Halloween really is. That it's the Vigil of All Saints Day, and it is the first day of that Catholic uh, kind of, like I say, the, the triumvirate of, of death. The Halloween Vigil, All Saints Day, when the church uh, militant honors and prays for the intercession of the church triumphant. And then All Souls Day, when we in turn intercede for the suffering souls in purgatory. And don't forget that All Saints Day is a holy day of obligation. So unless you have some uh, grave reason, you need to get yourself into church on the 1st of November. And also that we do have this, this octave of Halloween. You've got eight days to gain a um, indulgent, partial, or plenary by visiting um, your deceased loved ones uh, to go to the cemetery and pray in this season of uh, All Hallowtide. Because uh, that's what Halloween's all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> and that's no nonsense. All right. Um, I think we've kind of taken a sledgehammer to a flea on that one, but I, I hope that it may have cleared up some confusion that some people might have regarding Halloween. And I want to turn now to the uh, U.S. bishops. They are promoting uh, a Eucharistic revival. They want to see a Eucharistic revival in the United States. It was prompted really uh, by a discussion at the bishops' conference regarding the rather disturbing statistic that apparently something like 70% of Catholics do not either understand or believe the doctrine of transubstantiation. They don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that's a crisis of faith. And so the bishop have, bishops have proposed this three-year uh, program of Eucharistic revival. 
And, uh, you know, they have a, a website, eucharisticrevival.org, and you can go and find out about uh, uh, all those, you know, the materials that they're producing. They've uh, got videos on the Blessed Sacrament, and they've got people traveling around preaching at different dioceses, so you can maybe arrange for somebody to come locally and preach a mission there. But uh, Father Peter Stravinskus published an article the other day, and we've known Father Stravinskus I, when I worked at St. Joseph, you know, 20 years ago and more. You know, Terry and he go back further than that. He was, you know, kind of the, um, the question and answer man for Our Sunday Visitor. In 1987, he actually started his own publication called The Catholic Answer. So, you know, for people that had questions about the faith. And Father Stravinskis, I would point out, also went started seminary in 1968, and then he was ordained to the priesthood in 1977. So his formation all happened in the years following the Second Vatican Council. So Father Stravinskis is not a traditionalist priest. He's not a he doesn't say the traditional mass or or advocate for those things. He's he's very much dyed in the wool, uh, mainstream Catholic priest. And yet in this article, uh, he's written called What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival. And he brings up a lot of things that he thinks need to be corrected liturgically if the bishops expect to have any real success with their Eucharistic revival. He said that the, the American bishops are rightly concerned about the widespread loss of faith in uh, the Holy Eucharist. And, and But they've launched this program, but he says all the teaching, preaching, and programs in the world are, will avail little or nothing unless they address the root causes of unbelief, namely the signs and symbols of the sacred liturgy, which no longer support the teaching. It's a bold thing to say, but he's going to uh, tell us why. When we come back right after this, take a look at that article that he posted in The Catholic Thing. That and more when we return with the final segment of No Nonsense Catholic on uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about the bishop's call for a Eucharistic revival and a response that was uh, written by Father Peter Stravinskis, great uh, liturgist, uh, prolific Catholic uh, author, and mainstream Catholic priest. Very much, uh, you know, like I say, he had his seminary formation and his... Uh, Ordination to the priesthood all happened after Vatican II, and he's not advocating for a return to the uh, traditional Mass or any of that. However, he says that um, in regard to this Eucharistic revival, he said, all the teaching, preaching, and programs in the world will avail little to nothing if we don't address the root causes of unbelief, namely that the signs and symbols of the sacred liturgy no longer support the teaching. And then he goes on to to uh, suggest a you know give his his modest proposal to reverse the problem, and the first thing he says that needs to be addressed is the last loss of Latin, and in not the Latin Mass but the Latin within the Novus Ordo Missae. He said the Council Fathers, referring to Vatican II, 
opened up the possibility, I'd like to underline that, he didn't emphasize it, but I will, the possibility for greater use of the vernacular. So, for example, the scripture readings and the, the prayer of the faithful and so on. It says, but they were quite clear that Latin should not only be retained in the liturgy, but that the faithful ought to be able to respond to the Latin prayers and sing the venerable Gregorian chants. In other words, you should be able to attend the Mass in Novus Ordo Mass in Latin and say all the responses in Latin and be able to sing the, the, the Gloria and, uh, and the, the Creed and so forth, to be able to chant them along with the cantor or the choir. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, you know, virtually no serious attempt has been made in that direction church-wide. He said that every major religion retains a place of honor for a sacral language, lest the pedestrian override the sacred. He said banishing Latin has also contributed to the quote-unquote balkanization of parishes, you know, as the various ethnic groups split off into separate communities. And you see that there are so many, especially here in Southern California, you'll have uh, people that go to the Mass in English and people that go to the Mass in Vietnamese and people that go to the Mass in Spanish and people that go to the Mass in uh, Tagalog and the people that go to the Mass in Chinese. And, you know, at these various communities, it's really like three congregations just sharing a worship space instead of a parish church. Uh, so that's number one, loss of Latin. Number two, he said, is the movement of the tabernacle. And he, again, like I say, he's very much a dyed-in-the-wool Vatican II priest. He says, in the credo of the people of God, which was written by Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI now, it says it referred to the tabernacle as, quote, the living heart of each of our churches. So small sea church, right, church buildings. And so Father Stravinskis asked, why was the tabernacle relegated to a side altar or a separate chapel or closet, he says in parentheses, which results in the replacement of Christ at the center of the sanctuary, often with the uh, presider's chair, the enthronement of the, of the priest. He said, with the tabernacle being removed from the central axis, should we be surprised by people chatting as they enter the church as if they were entering a movie theater? because there's a loss of the sense of the sacred by removing the tabernacle. Uh, likewise, the removal of altar rails. He says, uh, ripping out altar rails obscured the necessary distinction between the sacred and the profane. That the, that the rail visually set apart the sanctuary from the nave of the church, right? That place, the sanctuary, is where, as Scott Hahn would say, that's where heaven comes down to earth, all right? And, and those of, on earth, he says, have difficulty uh, understanding that, which, you know, we, we should be able to do that at, at every, math, because, every Mass because we've lost that distinction. Uh, next, he says, the communion fast. And this is prior to Pope Pius XII. Uh, the com communion fast began at midnight. So if you were going to receive communion, you had nothing to eat after midnight the night before. And, and that's a difficult discipline. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the frequent communion that was advocated by Pius X, he said, was noted in the breach more than the observance. And, and you get that. You know, it's like I, I think Pius X, when he was promoting frequent communion, he assumed he was going to create an army of saints because he'd have an army of people who were fasting every day and who were doing everything to remain in a state of grace and they were going to frequently to confession and receiving communion worthily and frequently. 
And, uh, you know, and again, he says it's often um, noted in the breach more than the observance. And it was Pius XII then who, who mitigated the fast to three hours for solid foods and one hour for liquids. And in Paul VI modified the fast even further, so just one hour, uh, and that's the present discipline, without solid food or liquids, with the exception of water or medicine. See, the point of the Eucharistic fast is not just symbolic. It's meant to make us feel physical hunger, right? To associate that with the spiritual hunger that we should have for the grace of God, for the bread of life that we receive in the Holy Eucharist. Um, Another one he mentions is standing for communion. He said, for centuries, many, many, millennia, uh, Western Catholics in the Western Church have knelt to receive the Eucharist. Um, And the problem, he says, is not so much with standing versus kneeling as it is with the lack of any sign of reverence. He says, have we forgotten St. Augustine's admonition that no one eat the flesh without first adoring it and that we would sin if we failed to adore Christ in the sacrament? And of course, kneeling for communion is that kneeling is the posture of adoration. See, I remember uh, having this conversation years ago with somebody who said, well, you know, uh, in our society, if you want to show respect for somebody, you stand, right? Like when a judge comes into a courtroom, you stand up. And I said to him, I said, that's right, you stand to honor a man, but you kneel before God. And that's the difference here. And that's what we're talking about is that he is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament, and so it's appropriate to kneel to receive communion. Um also, there's, uh, we're told that we should make a sign of reverence if you're, gonna, if you're going to receive standing. See, this is the thing. You know, that was, it was granted as an, as an indult. So if you're going to receive standing, that you must make some uh, obeisance before you receive. So it's, um, you know, people will genuflect or make a profound bow before they step up to receive Holy Communion if you're going to receive standing. And, and I've seen some people, you know, who uh, they want to be pious and they go to the traditional mass or they go to a church where they do have an altar rail where you can kneel for communion. If you're kneeling, you don't have to make that obeisance. You know, that, that profound bow that you make before you receive is in lieu of the fact that you're not going to kneel. All right. So if you're kneeling for communion, no other sign is necessary. All right. Uh, the other thing that uh, Father Stravinskis, again, Novus Ordo priest, uh, and a very knowledgeable one tells us uh, that one of the uh, problems, one of the signs that uh, obscures um, the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that teaching, is mass facing the people, where the priest uh, faces the congregation, versus populum, they call it. He says, that celebration of the Eucharist is a true novelty, Right? And, and St. Peter's in Rome is the exception that proves the rule because uh, the priest is meant to um, face the east. And because, you know, uh, St. Peter's Basilica faces west, the, uh, the priest would face the east, right, even though the congregation was before the altar. Um, but in every, every religion where sacrifice is offered, from biblical Jerusalem to, you know, the, the pagan Greeks and Romans, the priest and the people— facing the same direction, presumably, you know, facing the, the divinity that's being implored. Um, and, of course, 
Christianity and Judeo-Christian tradition that sunrise is a sign of God. And so we face to the east. All right. And ironically, he said, versus populum uh, is far more clericalist than ad orientum, which means facing east, because it makes the priest the center of attention. And it's true, when, when, when the priest is standing versus, you know, standing facing the altar and he raises the host at the elevation, that's a real moment. It's very different when he's looking right at you, you know. <clears throat> makes him a focus uh, and, and not so much the Holy Eucharist. And then, uh, and he goes on, and there's, obviously we're gonna, not going to be able to, uh, to share everything that he had to say because we're going to run out of time, but I'll give this one more thing, is um, Extraordinary Ministers of Holy Communion. You know, that was actually uh, promulgated in 1973 in an encyclical called Immense Caritatis, and he gave very precise indications for recourse to the non-ordained distributing Holy Communion. And those norms were subsequently incorporated into the 1983 Code of Canon Law, so it's still existing law. Father, <coughs> pardon me, Father Stravinsky says, I have never seen a situation in which those norms are followed. And I guess I'm going to leave you on that. We'll come back and talk about uh, this more again next week because he makes some other points, particularly two things that I think that, that do kind of militate against people's understanding of the real presence. That, that is, number one, of uh, having lay people distribute Holy Communion and to receive Holy Communion in the hand. Right? Both are allowed by the church's law. Both are often abused, and both are um, or can be an impediment for, <coughs> for belief in the real presence. Pardon me. They moved me into uh, <clears throat> Studio One here, and unfortunately, unfortunately there's no cough button, <clears throat> and I got a dry spot in my throat for the last minute of the show. Anyway, next week, going to come back with more of that. Also, Terry and I, on the Terry and Jesse show today, I sat in for Jess Romero, and we talked about the hidden power of forgiveness. And I want to talk about, next week, a number of questions, common questions that people have about forgiveness. <coughs> Sorry. So we have that to look forward to. Also, we'll be doing the gospel for next week and all the things that we normally do. I just want to encourage you in the final moments here to go to vmpr.org. If you haven't, visit our website. First off, there's a bunch of uh, information there about what's going on here and all the different shows that we have and so forth. And I want you to avail yourself of that. But also... It's on vmpr.org that you can download our smartphone app. And that's really the best way to, you know, you will always have the shows right there uh, at your fingertips. You can listen to them as their podcast live, and you can listen to them on demand uh, at your leisure. And you don't have to worry about uh, finding your particular podcast platform or any of that. Makes it super easy, all in one place. And there's lots of other stuff on the app. Uh, also, prayers and uh, information that'll be uh, good for you. And also just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support of Virgin Most Powerful, your prayers especially, and your financial support. You can find out about that on the website as well. And until next time, again, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.